Welcome to Real Asian Podcast. I am Ray Liu, and I'm joined today with Praga and Renee. Hello, you two. I am excited to talk to have you both on on this pod today. What's up? How y'all hey, doing? Let's get it started. Yeah, it's been a while since I've been on a pod with Renee, so I'm excited. Yes, it has been a little bit of time has elapsed, um, <laughs> but time is a continuum. I mean, there isn't a linear. There you go. Right, so I don't know. <laughs> Wow. Wow. You getting real deep right <laughs> off the bat. Clearly you are not rusty at all. <laughs> Thanks. So today's episode, we are doing a top five, another top five listing. Um, so we've done already one with uh, films and but we're doing another one with so the other one we did with films, but it was more impactful big budgeted films. I guess that was kind of the the sentiment by it. But in this case, we're doing a top five indie films why these films are significant, why they should be talked about, right? So that's what we're talking about today. Top five independent, significant independent API films, All right? You guys ready? And we're going to do uh, the order will be Renee, Praga, then me. And we're going snake draft back to me, back to Renee, all that good stuff for all you fantasy lovers out there. So that's the <laughs> formation. You guys ready? All right. So Renee, good to have you back. You're going to kick things off. First, let's start with your criteria, how you yes. how your list came to be, and then start off with your number five. Okay, so just jumping right into it, my criteria was that it must not be financed by a major production label, right? Like mm. Universal, uh, so forth. Budget had to be below, and I'm saying this because, and this is adjusted gr- uh, budget from then to uh 2022's right uh inflation uh <laughs> so it had to be below 10 million and i know that sounds like a really high number um but i that's just for me what i thought because for an example while something like crazy rich asians was really you know influential not by long shot considered an independent film because of how big their budget was um ideally the uh cast had to be predominantly asian um and if that's it was given. an international film <laughs> It had to be submitted to a U.S. film festival. So mm. that was mm. my criteria. Okay. Um, so for our top five, I'm going to go with my number five. Um, coming in strong with Origin Story Documentary by Kula Vilasak. Yes. Um, there is no official uh, number for the actual amount raised, but when you take a look at her crowdfunding that she did, very uh, scrappy to be mm-hmm. able to do that, get crowdfunding. Um, but they were able to raise one hundred and eleven thousand wow. dollars. So, it uh, to me personally, I felt like it did fit the criteria for an independent film. And the reason why it ended up in my top five is because one of the things I really appreciated about it was uh, the ability to kind of highlight a Southeast Asian family um, from someone who actually is part of the biz. So you can kind of be able to see both the straddling of someone who's super um, impactful in their line of work, who's someone who's like successful, but also the battles that she faced um, Mm -hmm. just personally to be able to get there. And so I love that, that origin story of Kulab Vilasek. I'm so glad you put that movie on your list because I also have origin story on my list and I'll kind of go through what where it is oh. on my list when it comes to that but um I mean if you recall we did an episode on it so go check it out now shameless yes, plug did. 
And it's also with <laughs> Renee and myself. Yes, check it out. I think that was, no, that was not your first film, but that was one of the films that you it had highlighted. It was not my first, but it was really close. Yes, yeah. You, yeah. you definitely recommended that film to me. And uh, you're right. I loved how, number one, I, the way that the documentary starts with this huge, shocking revelation mm. of Kulap's like family history. And you're like, oh shit, here we go. And you're just kind of taken on for this roller coaster. But Definitely, definitely, totally, wholeheartedly agree uh, for your listing of origin story. So first off, yes, that's right. I did not pop my cherry uh, with uh, origin <laughs> story, actually. Um, but it was my second. So, you know, it's still something really close to my heart. Definitely check out season one of Real Asian Podcast. Yeah. Um, but what was really great about the film itself when it first starts off with that, you the punchline of that, like that big, huge reveal, you... You realize that's that's not the full story, though. And I think that's mm, one yeah. of the things that I really liked about it is that they punch you in the gut with it immediately. but And that's just really just to pull you in. The storytelling around it is still really, really interesting. And you just feel really sucked in the entire time. So I really appreciated that. Pragya, have you gotten a chance to see it yet? No, I have not. So I was kind of just like nodding. Yes. Great. <laughs> no <Beautiful>. worries. <laughs> Check it out if you get a chance. I think it's on Amazon Prime. I forgot okay. how we watched it. That's right. It's still yeah. there. I think it's, yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. So if you ever get a chance to watch it, it's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, but, but Pragya, let's go into your number five with okay. starting with your criteria. Yes. So my criteria, well, um, you know, I've done a few podcasts or like episodes now, and I don't think I've had a chance to talk very much about like Japanese film, despite that being like one of the big sort of like um, film areas for me. And so uh, when I was starting to like list my like independent films out, at first I felt it was a little bit repetitive because I've had a chance to talk about most of my like um overall sort of independent film so this time I was like you know what like I'm gonna go into animations more um so generally my criteria is that probably nobody has heard of it generally super low budget um and earlier films of like now well-known directors so this would be like stuff that um you kind of like miss but then maybe you saw their next film and you're like oh like that's so cool or whatever um so it's a different kind of take on independent from Renee's but like I still think that like all of my films are you know like not like super big budget or like big studio so without further ado I'll start with my number five which is a recent film or I think it's the most recent film on this and it's A Letter to Momo by Hiroyuki Okura um, and I'm have have either of you seen the letter to Momo? No, <laughs> no. So your first criteria. Yes. Most people have never seen it. Check, check. <laughs> letter to Momo is um, it's a film about a girl who has like an anxiety disorder after her father passes away, and it's um, it's still like very early after he passes away, and her mother and her move back to the village or like the countryside, and so Japanese uh, film generally tends to have a different vibe from like Chinese film or like Indian film, and definitely American. film film because like um they have sort of like a shinto um mm -hmm. sort of s like sensibility to it and so a letter to momo is a great one because you have uh the japanese demons like yokai like the afterlife but they're all hanging out you know and um they kind of help her through her like anxiety disorder they help her get through like you know 
this grief and then um there's like a really cute ending um for a letter to momo at the end uh with the letter motif so i think this is like a film where like if you're dealing with any type of like difficulties or something like that like it's a good one to watch to feel um I think uplifted a little bit and then also to get a sense for um some some Japanese traditions that aren't always focused on so like in like something like My Neighbor Totoro you get the sense of Totoro as this like yokai right so this would kind of be expanding upon that so for people who are mm. interested in that kind of thing Letter to Momo is a great film That sounds wonderful You know with with animations especially Japanese animations they they have a way of dealing with very serious and you know human mm -hmm. topics and emotions but done so in a very beautiful like you know aesthetic way in animation that it just kind of makes it a little bit more palatable and mm -hmm. you don't know that you're kind of working through the emotions of the of the character with mm -hmm. them um i could definitely see that why a movie like that could connect and resonate so well with you yeah i'll definitely have to check it out i i think one of my favorite animation pieces, and it's not like an independent at all, but um, it's it's by Studio Ghibli, so you know, pretty prominent studio. But it's by one of the. It's not directed by Hayao Miyazaki. It's actually directed by Isao Takahata. Uh, Grave of the Fireflies, mm -hmm. which is very deep, very sad. Mm -hmm. um, and there's like you know, like yokai in that same sense too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, definitely. Like, is it is the film that you um, letters to Momo? Is that something like a feel good, or is it like oh, you watched it, you're good, you don't need to see it again, or is it like like what's the tone? It's not exactly a feel good because um, the issues are serious and um, the ways that um, like Momo goes about like having fights with her mother and like the family sort of like falling apart but coming back together and like seeing all of that is is like um, it's very relatable and it's um, it's something I think that we've all experienced but at the very end it kind of like like it, it is a happy ending and it does throw in like a little bit of like magical realism and like sweetness. So um, I think that for that reason, um, as long as like you're a, a semi mature viewer, like I wouldn't have my 13 year old watch this necessarily. <laughs> okay. I mean, like they could they could watch it, but they're not going to get the same thing from it as someone who's a little bit older um, right. because of the way the motifs are handled. Okay, let me go into my number five and I'll go through my criteria. So independent film or indie films, however you want to say it. Uh, much similar to your criteria, Renee, is, you know, obviously can't have like a huge massive budget behind it. Uh, in terms of the content controlled more by the creator in terms of the, the creativity, the voice and how it does. Um, the artist or the filmmaker wants to portray the a particular vision. Sometimes it could also mean it has fewer crew members, but I think more or less it's for me, it's just where the film gets, gets a sense where you had the, where the filmmaker really had like full control of the whole production process and just had greater freedom to tell the story. So I think that was my criteria. I mean, I think the budget was like the biggest thing for me. My criteria in terms of significance, um, and this could be significant in a good or a bad way, although I think most of my films on this list are primarily good films, I would like to say, but um, it does mean that it told a very specific story, had a had a vision to it. And I think for me, it was able to invoke some kind of like empathy towards the characters and the story. So very relatable. So 
My number five movie is going to be the 2019 independent film, Happy Cleaners, put together by our good friends of the pod, Julian Kim and Peter Lee. So um, I don't want to say there's any kind of bias in it just because they jumped. They actually, we did a pod episode on uh, Happy Cleaners and we got to talk with the filmmakers. Right, right. No shameless plugs here. Of course, no, of course not. (laughs) Uh, But objectively speaking, I think what I really liked about Happy Cleaners is its direct focus on the immigrant experience. Um, The movie starts with like a very heated argument between the son and the mom and it just gets really raw throughout the whole film. And, And I like that it's a contemporary setting, so it's set in modern times but kind of reminds us of the struggles that still very much exist today of the immigrant experience, especially in a growing, growing community it takes place in Flushing, New York. And so it also touches upon themes like, uh, like gentrification, displacement of working families, generational hardships, expectations, uh, family expectations, all of that. What's also really significant about this film was the support it got from the API community I remember when we were prepping for the episode or talking with the crew, the film was able to achieve 325% of their Kickstarter goal in order to get it through post-production. And so for me, like that really showed the community, like larger API community coming together and wanting to see this film made and released. And also the fact that Julian, Peter, Kat, and and the rest of the cast took the time to interview with so many small independent podcasters like myself and ours here at the show um, that show that they were just really uh, grounded in terms of uh, connecting with their community. So that was great. And it was also, the last thing I'll say about this is that the film was also kind of came out or talked about when during the time when uh, like the anti-Asian hate crimes were really spiking during this time. So it was kind of like this galvanizing moment to rally around this film and celebrate it and to celebrate all the great work that was being done by Asian Americans. And so I really put this at my top five that as being a very independent, a very significant independent film. Yeah, I mean, I love the way that you described it. And I definitely like based on all of those things, it's a super significant film, Um, especially with like the immigrant experience being so top of mind for all of us right now, right? Like with COVID-19 and like everything that happened, um, you're starting to see like violence against Asian people as like more of a, you know, thing. And then also like... um, on sort of like doing the model minority myth and really like talking about that as well as um, just like conversations around race in America being like highly like polarized, I think around very specific um, races that are seen as like worthy of discussion or, you know, having like this oppressed history. But it's so cool to see like a film go into like, you know, these generational struggles that like we all can trace into our yeah. like very recent history. Right. So that's awesome. Ray, I'm really glad that you brought up Happy Cleaners because even though I didn't get a chance to actually be on the episode, I did get a chance to watch it. And it was and all the things that you noted really stood out to me. I think one of the my favorite quotes actually is at the very end where it talks about how, you know, the sister saying talking to her brother and, and she was talking about like how the hyphen in Asian American is a bridge, you know, and I was like, damn, oh, I really wish I was on this episode because that really just like spoke to me really about the in, fully encompassing the entire film about what exactly what you were trying to say, like just the generational hustle 
that we all do to be able to just survive. Okay, so snake draft, I'll go right into my number four. Uh, I mentioned this and Renee, you mentioned it already. My number four is actually origin story as well. So uh, why, I, why I put it on my list here is, you know, Kulop's extremely personal documentary. I mean, even the even just to even make a film like this about you and your family history and this all this stuff is already taking a huge, massive step um, that's like opening your life into the world. But I think the biggest thing why I find Kulap's documentary so significant is that does remind us how beautifully flawed we can all be from the beginning of the film. I mean, it's in the beginning of the film, so I'm just going to say, basically, it starts off with Kulap finding out that her her father that she thought was her biological father was not really her biological father. And the reason why she found out is because her mom was fighting with what she thought was her bio dad. Uh, and then she like said it mistakenly. She's like, why are you sticking up for your father? He's not even your real dad. Like when she was, I think she was a teenager or, or younger. So this whole time she was like, like mind blown, like what, what did you mean about that? And then she kind of like tucked it away for the longest time. And it wasn't until her thirties though, she decided to say, okay, I'm going to go on this search for my real dad without kind of describing the whole entire documentary. It kind of does beg the question to, are we better off knowing the truth, even if it could hurt us? Because this whole time, during the documentary, you're kind of wondering, like, who is Kulap's real dad and who is this person going to be kind of thing? And there's like this dark cloud that's kind of looming over the film. And I do love how it frames Asian Americans on a macro sense that we're all kind of superheroes in a way. We all have unique origin stories, like many first generation Asian Americans or who have immigrated here at a young, uh, at a young age like myself. We don't know exactly our our, our roots, especially if they're coming from a war, a war-torn country, and so Kulap's film kind of has us reflecting on the past and wondering like where our people came from and what our origins are. But yeah, so I think that was the reason why I really loved uh, this film and put it on my list. Absolutely, um, snaps all around because I <laughs> completely agree. And for me, you know, the most relatable definitely is the relationship that she has with her mom. And, you know, character development on my end from when I first watched that film in 2018 and even recorded the episode back in 2021, you know, like I finally, you know, started kind of having a relationship with my mom again. And that's mm -hmm. actually really big development for me. You know, like I hadn't talked to her in like seven years and even just like a couple months ago, we saw her in person and we didn't exchange any words. So, you know, I just want to say like, you know, that Asian, like, not, it's not just Asian families, but there already is like all that generational trauma from like being refugees from Southeast Asia and coming and, and unpacking all of that. And like, and basically just like forgiving your parents for being who they were when you were younger, because like situationally, like they were just trying to survive. Yeah. Bring your tissues. Um, <laughs> Ray did not cry, though, I will say. I'm still on that mission to try to make Ray cry and suggesting films this. that will try to push him. But he, he's like, oh, oh. there's this, uh, what is it, The um, this gif, uh, this meme of like this cop, black cop crying. And, and he's like, get back in their tear. You know, that's Ray. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to end up crying at the most randomest, unexpected film. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, it it's might be, be my like, next one. <laughs> right? No, you know what? I I almost thought Ray would have cried while watching Boogie. 
because uh, you know, getting that final shot, and then he's like, "Oh, oh yeah, man, yeah. he did it! He did it! Oh, he he beat Pop Smoke!" But you know, whatever. My my boy Boogie. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, you you got to you got a chance to ask Kulap a question, right? I think, right? Or I meet- did. Yeah. So when I first watched it back in 2018, it was actually at a film festival, and she happened to be there. And, um, you know, I was just, oh, snot bubbles the entire time, crying, like, I was not ready for it. And just being able to kind of ask her about the significance, um, you know, like, I, God, I can't even really remember that question now. It's been, what year are we in? Um, but, you know, like, being <laughs> able to have that connection with her and just, like, kind of talking about, like, you know, what, what what's the most influential thing? Like, what make, does anything of this film make you cry? Still thinking about it. And it really is, like, the part that makes her the most upset and sad is like the the relationship with her bio dad just wasn't there it just was not you know right able to be bridged and so i think that's really interesting ah uh, go watch it fraga go, go watch <laughs> okay it. okay i clearly have to go watch this one <laughs> <laughs> okay um, all righty so let's go into your number four Yes, so my number four, uh, which is sure to make Ray cry, is <laughs> called uh, You Are Umaso. I wouldn't say it's a bigger budget film. It's a very low budget film, but it did have some um, like decent um, distribution because it's based on a popular kids book. Um, but the reason that I have kept it here as my number four is because it's a dinosaur film. Uh, kind of like Land Before Time, right? Where we mm. were all just like, ah, oh, tears, right? But it's like the Japanese Land Before Time. Wow. Yeah. And so it deals with a uh, carnivorous dinosaur egg that gets like taken down the river and is raised by um, herbivorous um, dinosaurs. Yeah. And so then when he starts growing up, like he eats berries, but he starts like craving meat and he's like small and he's like, you know, not growing correctly because like you know he's not getting any meat and he's, he's not start- getting the protein yeah and and then he like bites his brother's tail and he's like horrified because he loves his family so he runs mm. away basically goes off into exile by himself into like the outer land where there's carnivores and like he like learns to sort of like survive but then he accidentally hatches an egg and it's an herbivorous dinosaur so now he like is like oh like you look yummy and the dinosaur baby thinks that that's his father and he's been named yummy so (laughs) 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 right and so now you have three generations of like this like zigzag and it talks about like family and like trust and all of these like beautiful things in like this nature versus nurture (laughs) it doesn't it doesn't really get into that because you even okay. do meet um like the main uh carnivorous dinosaur's dad a few times and like he also has some like little tidbits but um i think that you know despite it being like an animation about dinosaurs it has like a lot of related like just like relatability for like family mm. structures and like you know um values and things that are different when like you know you grow up in a different environment or you have like something yeah. different about yourself so it's just like a very like sweet 
uh, film. It's funny. It ha- it's really beautifully animated. Um, and there's like multiple sort of story arcs. He even goes off to the ocean and has like an ocean dinosaur teach him some lessons. <laughs> um, ocean dinosaur, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, um, but awesome. it's, it's overall, it's really cute. And like, I think everyone should watch this one, which is why I put it on here. Yeah. Very nice. I love cute dinosaurs. Do they are they drawn like in a cute way too? Or? Yeah, yeah, it's super cute, and like there's like you know Japanese puns going off everywhere. So like it helps if you know a little bit of Japanese. Like even like the you are Uma, so is like you look really delicious, and so he thinks that's his name. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah, <laughs> he's like Tosan. You just called me Yummy. That's my name, right? And the dude is like, Oh, yeah, I guess. Oh my sure. Sure. So, so it's really cute um and it's one of those that like is just like well worth the watch and like uh then like you can sort of like have it you know like under your belt as like something that nobody else has seen but like you just have this knowledge of like what's going on in japan <laughs> mm. yeah yeah pretty Absolutely. recent i think it, it's yeah a, it's a modern well, it's not super recent, I don't think, but um, it, it does have like um, some sequels. So I think you might ah. be talking about its sequels, which are more recent. Okay. Renee, you're number four. Ooh, okay. So it was really hard for me to put this list together because there's quite a few really good independent films. But I want to go ahead and do a shout out to a recent film, you know, 2021 released. Well, 2020, actually, because film festival release, um, Minari, coming in at $2 million budget. Not only is the storytelling, the acting, all of it really good, but the cultural turning point that occurred because of Minari and the awards seasons and things like that around how the fact that Minari while being amazing, did not qualify for potential best film, you know, feature film. And the only reason being that the large majority of the dialogue not being in English. Even though it's set in America. Kind of absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and but the fact is that it was um the seminal moment in our, you know, this this like U.S. local awards uh, shows, right? Yeah. <laughs> About how we should really take another look at the criteria that we have, and it really smacked of continued otherism and anti-Asian kind of, you know, mm-hmm. just racism. And by um, local award show, show you mean you mean the Oscars, right? That's, that's right. like a Juno <laughs> reference. <laughs> yes. He was like, I don't get what the big deal is. It's just a local award show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And the and so, you know, those those are some of the things I also took into account when talking about the significance of AA or API independent films, right? So budget mm-hmm. was small, but the fact that it was able to kind of turn the industry on its head and say, look in the mirror in regards to how you treat like non-English speaking, non, you know, white looking <laughs> cast members. Um, and, and really appreciate film for the art that it is. Yeah. Honestly, like one of the interesting things about watching Minari was that it made me um, 
uh, like even though I knew I was watching like an Asian American film, I was like uncomfortable with it because I was like, this is so foreign to me. Like this is not an Asian American experience that I know anything about mm. that has anything to do with me. And even like the cultural interactions between the family and the expectations that they had of each other. I was like, bruh, this, this wasn't us. Nope. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say like we had more urgency or anything like that, but it was just that like a lot of the the things that come up because it's a different culture are things that are not broached in like, let's say Indian culture. And like mm. we would have completely different conversations yeah. or arguments or whatever. So that was interesting. Yeah, I yeah. would say, you know, for there are quite a bit of Asians living not only in the South, but in the Midwest. And so mm -hmm. the the film itself actually was re relatable to me. Um, and mostly because like my family, uh, we're a family of farmers. So mm -hmm. all of that, that hustle of farming is something that is very familiar to me, whether it's here in California and in, in Central Valley in Fresno or, you know, on, you know, a farm in Arkansas, like these mm -hmm. are things that were, are relatable to me. So exactly what you were saying is like, it doesn't, not every Asian experience is going to be the same. And I think that mm -hmm. was something to really that that really called to to mind like with Minari just the fact that hey some people are going to get it some people aren't and that's mm -hmm. uh, you know they're not going to relate to it but that doesn't mean that it is an erasure of their experience mm -hmm, mm -hmm. interesting you know I didn't think about putting this film in my list I loved it um for 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 it to be indie and kind of you going over in terms of what it accomplished and Independence, I, I think the only reason why I didn't consider it independent, not saying that it isn't independent, but why I didn't consider it independent is because of the recognition and the, uh, yeah, the, the, the conversations and the pub that this movie got. And for me, it's just kind of like, okay, well, a lot of people know about it. Um, it was distributed by A24, which is not a huge, huge uh company or the production it was by plan b entertainment but distributed by a24 but i think because a24 was attached to it i had become so recognized with the with the uh the film company because they put out uh what's it called the adam sandler movie uncut gems uh mm -hmm. and they put out uh, they put out other like really good films too and i was like okay well i feel like these are not necessarily independent in my in my criteria i see but no no i, I get it you kind it. of talking about it, I was like, I guess it is independent because it didn't have a <laughs> massive budget. It didn't, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. But it made such a huge splash. I think it was for me, it was like, okay, maybe it kind of, the splash it made put it up in that upper or that other level of it mm. being not so independent. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's in my top five significant versus, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> indie film uh, list for sure. Okay. Um, so that was your number four. Now we're going into, Renee, you're number three. All right, number three. So um, we also did an episode on this. Uh, shout out to uh, guest Sava Razi. Uh, hey. We, yeah. <laughs> um, this film had a budget of $9.5 right? So it fit my must be under Barely. 10. <laughs> but just skirted me just in just in <laughs> uh, but it still it, it still satisfies it it, it it was the one day they didn't have craft services and that that's knocked basically five hundred thousand. Right? <laughs> yeah i gotcha <laughs> or maybe yes okay so the the film that i chose for number, number three is the namesake and the reason mm. behind this is that um 
the timing that it came out in and the the framing of it, while I know the film itself is prob- problematic, there are also, potentially, there are also lots of really amazing shots and there's a lot of amazing storyline. It takes place in, in a time where, you know, a lot of Asian kind of... Um, we're not getting the representation in in film and and that's not only just about representation as well but it's also about like the fact that some of the things that we also deal with is like um the reckoning of our uh our whiteness and our privilege in this place in the in the US right and and i think that's one of the things that it kind of sh- shine that light on is like okay are we only valid if a white person uh validates us right and so right. there's that f- framing in it itself, but also some of the other things, some of my favorite shots were actually in, in India. Um, and just like the, like the opening scene with, um, you know, the, um, the mother putting her feet into the shoes and then the full circle scene of, you know, of, uh, Cal Penn's character putting his feet in the shoes of his father too. And it was just like, there's a lot of really beautiful uh, storytelling in it. So what are so some of the things again that make namesake really important to me is that you know is the fact that you know it was talking a little bit more about South Asian, and I think that's one of the things. There was a lot of racism against South Asians to the point where at that time and still now you see people people don't really consider Indian people Asians, which is really weird. I'm not sure why. <laughs> Um, We're our own subcontinent, so <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's more is. power to us. We yeah, own yeah. the entire <laughs> like, fine, we don't need you, too. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> like, but I forget think... about, like, you know, the Indian, like, you know, cultural exports over, like, a thousand years. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Like, right? y'all have Everywhere. Buddhism because of us, but <laughs> whatever. Yes, exactly. And, yeah. and, yeah, exactly. You know, namaste <laughs> over here in South, yeah. in East Asia right now. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, but no, so, you know, I think that's one of the things that really uh, puts a fine point to why it is actually in my yeah. top five. Yeah, I love that. Thanks for putting that one in there because, yeah, as an Indian person, which, you know, I'm the token South Asian <laughs> on the cast. No, I'm, just the kidding. Cast. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think like um, it was, it's interesting because um, it depends on the perspective of the person you're speaking to. If that person mm-hmm. has closer ties to Asia, they will 100% consider Indian as an Asian person. So when right. I'm in Japan, they'll be like, oh, it's because you're Asian. And I'll be like, oh, I am. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, rep- oh, yeah, that's right. They, I feel seen. <laughs> right. Well, because like, they'll be like, why is your Japanese so good and I'll be like well I mean like there's some similarities between Hindi and Japanese that helped me learn it and they'll be like oh it's because you're Asian and I'll be like okay or that (laughs) (laughs) you know um similarly like um like even here in America like if I'm in groups of people who like are like immigrated from their countries they will see india as asian but if it's like groups of people who are born here then indian is like this like liminal space that they don't know too much about and i think that's because of the way that like there's a lot of erasure about india in like just american education and like our overall conversations so like unless you lived in asia where you're exposed to bollywood and you're exposed to indian music and you're exposed to indian like laborers and migrants like 
like you have a completely different view from here where you're like oh they're just like the computer engineers they come from the subcontinent (laughs) 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 you know yeah great great choice okay uh so we're number three going to praga you're number three Yes, my number three. Okay, so my number three is Voices of a Distant Star by Makoto Shinkai. And he is a very popular director because if you have seen Your Name, which was a huge animation film, that's by him. Um, As well Mm -hmm. as Garden of Words, which might be familiar to like a very few number of people. And then like uh, Five Centimeters Per Second, which was like one of the biggest things in like 2011 through 15, where everyone was just into like this animation about lost love (laughs) um and all of his films tend to deal with um sort of like some um like ephemeral concept um and like the art is very beautiful and it's all very like aesthetic and like there's scenes of japan and like you just like really get into it and the music is really beautiful um for uh voices of a distant star that's sort of like where his style is like starting out um, and he wrote it, directed it, produced it, and he even did the voice acting for it with his Damn. like then girlfriend. Yeah. So this one is like no budget film. <laughs> um All me. Yeah, all him. He did all of it. Um uh, when they re-released it, they had someone else do the audio, um, like the the voice acting and stuff. But uh-huh. even so, like the film is um so like that's the background of the film. The film is about um like some point in the future, uh people are like sending um like kids i guess because like super evangelion right like to like space basically like in like these like space suits to like fight things like fight some sort of like monster but that's not like the the point the point is so she gets sent over there and she sends text messages back to the guy that she likes or that she liked but now they're separated and so the further out she gets from earth the longer it takes for the text messages to reach so like at first it'll take like three days for each text message to reach and then it starts taking like a year and then it takes like nine years and so she's just like off by herself like in like this corner doing these fights and he's like growing up obviously like on earth um and then eventually like she's like really far she's like by saturn or something so like each message is taking like nine years to come and like she thinks she's gonna die um the movie is about like relationships and communication and it comes out at a time where people started talking more on cell phones through text messages and um so another interesting aspect of it is the way that like communication became like instantaneous, like where before if someone left, they w- they were just gone, right? Like you had to send them letters, <laughs> maybe they got the letters or not. So it's like a romantic a stamp, little film. Put it in, yeah. Put it, get, wait for the mail person to come pick it up, you know? Yeah, you you like lose the relationship. Um, but yeah, so all of his films deal with like this like bittersweet sort of like heart wrenching type of love. Um, and so yeah, this is a really good one to watch by him very interesting concept i i I imagine it that basically encapsulates the text communication between an iphone user and an android user you know when you get that green (laughs) bubble oh my god (laughs) (laughs) and they send you a text and you get it like five hours later and you're like what i don't even i have zero i forgot what we were talking about already no i'm i'm imagining people who are basically they're iphone users and they text the number and it comes back green they're like oh i can't talk to you (laughs) oh my god it's also when you like start a group group text 
and there's that one person, you're like, okay. <laughs> okay, Who right. fucked this up for everyone? No. <laughs> I'm that one person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But that's interesting, yeah. though. Uh, I, I can imagine, I'm sure it probably already has, like someone turning into a full feature film, basing it off of the, the, the short animation. I mean, not this one. Um, I, I, it would be interesting to look back, but I think that this one is one that's sort of like, um, just like in the right space in the past that like people haven't gone back to look at it yet. So um, yeah. I think like as we get like further along and like we have our own like, you know, we're reflecting more on our relationship with technology and like algorithms yeah. and stuff, then it'll probably happen. Yeah. Oh, this is super relatable. I, I mean, that's a thing with, you know, that's the thing with these short, animations that you're talking about Praga and I think why your list is so important is because you see the big feature films often they are sourced from these shorts like right 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 some filmmaker kind of reads and they go oh this is really cool this is really interesting a very interesting premise and then what they do is basically expand on it and Mm -hmm. then turn it into a full film and then if it turns out really good a lot of people especially in American audiences like oh what a original idea what a creative (laughs) idea but then sometimes when you look into it you're like oh no they just like they 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 read a short story off of an Asian you know storyteller and they just basically made a whole uh, movie out of it and that kind of what happened with Edge of Tomorrow. I'm not sure, but it is something that happens in one of my next films, so I'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that. Okay, cool, great. I'm I'm, I'm gonna actually look it up. I, I'm taking note of all your your shorts. Oh, okay, good, 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 good. So my number three is going to be Justin Chan's Gook. So mm-hmm. we this is we have not done an episode on this yet. One one of the few known films, I think, to my knowledge, that really focuses on the Black and Asian shared, albeit sometimes like embattled experience. Mm-hmm. So the film set takes place in the early '90s uh, in LA, where the LA riots were happening. Justin Chan, he kind of this is his signature movie. He, he often deals with very very. Uh, tough situation. He's a bold filmmaker. He dares to tackle the rift between Black Americans and Korean Americans during this time. Uh, So just briefly, it it centers around two Korean American brothers who own a shoe store in a predominantly Black neighborhood. And so basically the whole film kind of deals with um, racial tensions during this time and how high it was. But it also kind of focused on the friendship that uh, Justin Chan's character, Eli, has with a young black girl named Camilla. Uh, and fortunately, Camilla's older brother despises Korean American. And he just kind of sees the Korean Ameri- uh, co- Korean community as a contributor to their plight. And so um, it also has like this indie spirit of it being uh, in complete black and white. So I think this I think why this film is is significant in my eyes is the fact that it stays on a very human level because there isn't some big, huge political message like explicitly that it tries to convey or even some kind of call to action. It doesn't paint one community as better than the other. You know, if anything, Justin does show how equally flawed and prejudiced Koreans can be as well. So it, um, it just it just simply captures like this clash between two communities that are that is very unsubtle and it's very in your face and i think also what's also important is the message of the and the themes of this film taking place in the early 90s kid also speaks to today's racial climate and how we're still very much struggling so i think this is a very very important um independent film that garners definitely a number three spot on my list 
Yeah, I think any person who doesn't know that Asians are racist against Black people <laughs> are not paying attention. So living if this is under your first a rock, time, right? It is your first time. Like, oh, such intrigue! I didn't realize Asian people could be racist against Blacks, and then it's like you're not, ugh, yeah. you're not paying attention. Um, but you, you know, I think all the points that you made are very, very like on point, right? I think it's, it's really important to kind of understand some of the the tensions that we have within our own communities and then externally and why it's important, you know, for us to kind of come together to, to be in solidarity, you know? Um, So against white supremacy, basically, you know, and I think that's, so the film doesn't go into that necessarily, but I think it's really important for us to like be able to see each other's experiences. Um, So while, you know, gook is something uh, like uh, there's definitely some controversial tension and things like that inside of it. I, I think it does. It, it, yeah. I think it does have a really good point of being able to show it. Mm-hmm. Another thing I think that we have to be careful of is like, when we say that Asians can be racist against black people, you have to understand that racism is like systemic historical and right. like, you mm-hmm. know, um, based in the foundation of white supremacy. And so while you can say that, um, you can be like racially, um, what's the word, like biased against. Uh, when we talk about Asians in America, you have to realize that um, post-Civil War, the first Asians to come were actually like being paid less than the freed slaves to build the railroads, to do mm-hmm. the farming, right? And then it, it continues that way because America, um, it participates in land wars in Asia, And so now you've got land wars in Vietnam, in South Korea, you've got occupation in the Philippines, you've got the nuclear bomb in Japan. And um, a lot of the Asians who have come to America post, you know, like, let's say about 1850, because that's when um, the slaves were freed and like there was a need for cheap labor. And like, so Mm -hmm. they started importing them from South America. It's that there is a sort of... Um, parallel system of oppression where Asians faced oppression and Black people faced the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, We know about the Atlantic slave trade very, very well. We do not know about and articulate the post-war experiences of Asian people, the refugee experiences of Asian people, and the American and British like colonialism is sort of at the the thing that makes like that that made all of that suffering happen right so yes asian people can be um you know discriminatory fair they can be violent they can be all of those things but are we racist in the same way as someone who enslaved the african you know um, like people I don't think so. And I think we have to be very careful to not overlap white supremacy with what is going on between Asian Americans or Asians and Africans. Right. I, my, my framing wasn't necessarily about like how like like what you're necessarily describing. Like I, I was definitely but, you know, the shared experience is really important to be able to like 
what what are where are the things that we're we have in common here what are the common grounds that we can be able to come towards right? well that's what the film opens up right like a mm-hmm. nuanced conversation yes. and that's the thing that we're missing a lot of the times is nuanced conversation yes the reason we talk about asian films is because asian films don't get talked about asian histories don't get talked about that these like you know 20 films that we are discussing over and over again are the ones that are starting to break into this experience right so mm-hmm. um we like on the podcast, like me, you can have like nuanced, you know, insight into this. That doesn't mean everyone who's listening is going to take it the same way, which is why I felt the need to be like, okay, if we're talking about racism, there is sort of two different things going on here, right? And we have to be very clear and not overlap them and not conflate them. Yeah, uh, but it also does show it's like it can come in many forms and come in, it come out in many places. Uh, you know, I think it's like, in an American perspective, yes, but then even within Asia, even within certain countries, there's like certain types of racism as well and t- certain types of colorism that kind of permeates within those cultures as well. So, uh, it's, yeah, but that colorism it's a very... deals differently with it's not, it's not about Africans anymore in that sense. And it's not like, you know, the claim that people make that like, oh, you know, Asians were colonized and took up like white or British beauty standards. I think there are a lot of people who would speak against that in nuanced, you know, arguments and mm-hmm read a lot of them so we, we just have to like if we're going to get into that conversation we have to be careful Pragya does a really good point of articulating that it is important for us to have nuanced viewpoints into what's going on right like and and not just modern times modernity in that regard but also like you know the post-war um and then also just like uh you know thinking about how we you know, uh, approach things in regards to, you know, colonialism and in Asia and how those imports mm-hmm. actually come into the U.S. based off of some of that as well, right? Right. And post-war is our grandparents, right? Like you talk exactly. about racist right. Asian people and they're the old people that were there during the war. No, no. I mean, exactly. They're living, breathing people <laughs> yeah. still today, right? We, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and the other thing is, and this is just like a slight thing that like I think is important to mention because we do API, but also A. API is that if you take American race relations and project them onto the rest of the world, that is highly America centric. Like no, your, perspe- right. your perspective is already like, you know, saying America is the hierarchy here. It's the standard. It's the place that we talk from and everything else needs to fit into this. And like, you know, we, we try to undo that. No, no, exactly. Right. There's definitely an you know, ethnocentric way to kind of look at the, the you know, our, our takes on film. And mm-hmm. I think that's why, you know, Pragya, I love having you here because, you know, most of most of the other cast are are born uh, American, uh, mm-hmm. Asian, and you're not, you know. So you have this, you know, 1.5 generational kind of thing going on that in perspective, that's very um, it's that's very worldly in a sense that kind of helps <laughs> us be grounded in the fact that, yeah, we're in America, but in the U.S., we're not the dominant uh, viewpoint, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get me a lot of fans, but I think it's always important <laughs> to to mention these things because like, it's you know, balance. we can <laughs> right. We can have like these large overarching things that we need to talk about and we need to be very cognizant of. Like there is a lot of racism against black people. There is a lot of racism against indigenous people. I'm not mm. going oh, to absolutely. deny that. Right. right. Um, but at the same time, when we start to talk about Asian complicity in those things, we have to be very careful about where we're putting Asians. And if we're putting them next to 
whiteness um that that needs to be questioned like that no, I, yeah absolutely i'm snaps yeah. here because that is absolutely <laughs> the takeaway right like why mm-hmm. do we put asianness next to whiteness you know and only only certain I yeah, and i don't think you that's know? what you were saying too renee i don't think that's what yeah, you were saying no too. no i know she wasn't saying that but like i just want to like you know like have it because there will be people who will sort of mindlessly listen and then have their own biases confirmed based on like what they hear so i thought that that was an important sort of like note to make no absolutely mm-hmm. i mean i'm i'm southeast asian ethnically yeah. right and and so i absolutely understand like um there are caste systems there are different <laughs> you know all these yeah. different things like with throughout asia and so mm-hmm. then some of it gets imported into the us as well and it's really important to understand like where how does that affect us but yeah i think we can go into right. it much deeper in another ep- episode in another episode <laughs> and, you know, yeah and, 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 and like final <laughs> sorry sorry final notes like i'm not letting the indian community off like y'all need to get your, <laughs> get your game together like <laughs> you know <laughs> that's yeah. your that was your biggest takeaway okay yeah <laughs> yeah yeah basically <laughs> like yeah <laughs> you know caste systems and like you know Mm-hmm. classism and classism, all of those yeah, things for sure yeah. yeah in every country okay mm-hmm. uh am i am i going so, to so my you number were two? you were gook um just now with number three what'd right? you so call yeah. me i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> sorry that was too easy uh, oh no gotta gotta address <laughs> you're about to get gotta canceled address my <laughs> yeah <laughs> just take it out of complete context like just <laughs> take it apart and just don't do it. Don't do it, right? <laughs> I know, I'm just kidding. Uh, so I, and then I'm going to my number two. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. So now my number two is the Donut King. Uh, oh. Another, the documentary okay. by Alice Gu. Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, another film that we did again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> go check out the episode now. <laughs> so Alice Gu's uh, documentary film, and you know, I was also kind of thinking. When I was thinking about putting this uh, movie on my list, I was like, should I have two documentaries kind of in a way? But here's my thing is I think sometimes often people don't really necessarily align them with your classic definition of a film, at least from the general public. But they are films. They're just mm-hmm. told in a, in a more nonfiction tone, obviously, because it's a documentary. But they are very much films. And I think having both Origin Story and Donut King on this list definitely garners a significant list because for me, for those of you who don't know, um, uh, Donut King explores how so many donut shops in California and maybe across America were owned by Cambodian families and the story of Ted Noy, who is credited to be the man that had the donut empire in the in the 70s and 80s. Hence, therefore, he is called the quote-unquote Donut King. And for me, it's like before watching this film, I didn't realize that this was something that permeated our communities without ever questioning or wondering how it came to be. Uh, I grew up in all the neighborhoods I grew up. I always loved to go check out the local donut shop. And more or less, it was always owned by a Cambodian family. And I didn't think anything mm-hmm. of it. But after watching this documentary, I was like, oh, okay. Like, that's crazy to see <laughs> like the, the the roots and the ties that kind of that, that are something that I can see today. And the film showed how Cambodian donut shops 
really became part of American culture. And mm -hmm. what I really liked about it is that it didn't just focus on Ted Noy and his journey and his rise to the to the donut empire, but it also talked about the socio-political events that caused Ted and many Cambodian families to flee their country and find prosperity in America, right? So it talks about mm -hmm. the Khmer Rouge and the genocide of Cambodian people, how families were uprooted and forced to either flee, work, or be executed. It also mm -hmm. talked about how the American response and how the conversations towards Southeast, Southeast Asian immigrants um, uh, was, was said during the time and how it's actually kind of eerily very similar to today, right? There's this, mm -hmm. uh, if you recall, Renee, there's this clip of former governor of California, Jerry Brown, talk about how California should, should be taking care of other Californians. Like, that we should focus on more Californians and Americans. Basically, right. he was saying, like, we don't want to take care of these immigrants, right? And this is um, Jerry Brown back during his first time around yes. as our governor. Mm -hmm. So I think that's also, like, really important context there, too. It, it hasn't gone anywhere. Like, I, I see it every day. Like, I do work in, like, children's services. So I will see mm -hmm. people who have, you know, power say things like, oh, no, I don't want to sign off on um, this grant for, like, English language learners or, or something like that. Even though it's written into the policy, it will be blocked on the people. It's coded. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Or yeah. similarly, they'll say stuff like immigrants shouldn't get to vote. They don't pay taxes towards like, like, uh, That's ridiculous. How, how, are you sure? I know. Uh, exactly. yeah, I know. <laughs> Let's pull up sure? the numbers. Here are the receipts. <laughs> yeah. But people, people like, you know, um, still have these views in institutional settings. So like, yes, what Donut King is bringing up. Also, number one, uh, the donuts. The, <laughs> yes. Just donuts galore. Yeah. So that's mm. going to be my number two. Definitely go check out a pink box uh, yes, you know, donut pink shop boxes. if you can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, Pragya, number two. Yes. So my number two film is Paprika by Satoshi Kon. Oh, um, yes. Yes. And so you've actually seen this one. Oh, I've seen it. Uh, yeah, I went to the, the San Francisco International Film Festival back in 2006. Okay. And they, okay. they had Paprika there. It was amazing. Oh, my yeah. God. It is such a good film. Um, so quick note. Uh, so Khan, this is his last film before he passes away of like, I think, cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and he has become a pretty big name at this point. So Paprika does have a decent budget. Um, but Perfect Blue, which is a different film that he made, um, actually inspired a lot of scenes in Black Swan. And um, which was with Natalie Portman. It's the... Um, it's yeah. the ballet movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the thing that Satoshi Khan is like really famous for is like his cuts, like the way that he changes scenes, the way that like one scene melds into another. And you really mm. have to view it to sort of understand like how genius his work is. Um, so this film is about basically like the sort of like intermeshing of dreams and reality. Um, there's like a sci-fi aspect to it where there's like this dream machine and people get keep getting pulled into like dreams and um so you don't know what's real and what's um what's a dream and um the the cuts the the way that he makes his transitions like really highlights that and um i think like he's one of the only directors that like really like sort of like has that sense of genius to him and i think a lot of people um like you know both on like the western side like directors and and people who make movies like took a lot of inspiration from him so i think that this film definitely needs to be number two for that reason yeah i mean uh, i i 
could not agree more with you. I think anyone who's seen Satoshi Kon's work knows his fingerprint mm-hmm. of style. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, definitely Paprika is like number one. But if you've seen any of his other work, like Tokyo Godfathers is amazing. Mm-hmm. Millennium Actress is amazing, mm-hmm. you know. And so it was, it's it's really sad, to, you know, that we were, that he was taken away from us. Like he mm-hmm. was like, you know, ordained from the heavens the way uh, he, he was really able was. to do his storytelling. I mean, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. how the hell was he able to weave these these mm-hmm. visual elements uh, to the point where you didn't know what the fuck he were really like? Is this yes. in real life or is this dream world? And he does that theme throughout, even like Millennium Actress and and Perfect um, Perfect Blue. So you know, like, I think you're. I, oh, I agree. Yes, I yeah. love your your choice number two good yes i'm glad yeah you like blink and you're like where am i with his (laughs) (laughs) i loved it i really did okay renee doso so my number two we're going all the way back to the the earlier trappings of hollywood film and it comes down to a somewhat problematic flower drum song back Mm. released back in 1961 so this was actually based off Yes, this is actually based off of a film, uh, a, a novel um, that was published back in 1975 called The Flower Drum Song um, by Chinese-American author C.Y. Lee. Um, it was later turned into a Broadway musical um, by uh, Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein that premiered the next year in 1958. And then it was adapted into film in 1961. Um, so, well, while it did was at the time considered having a really big Hollywood studio budget, the budget itself was four million dollars, and so it, it did it did um, hit my criteria as far as not over ten million. But it was the first film in Hollywood history, uh, well, because it was making history that focused on a primarily Asian and Asian American cast. Uh, you wouldn't see something like this until decades later in Joylet mm-hmm. Club, and then mm. again uh, with Crazy Rich Asians. Um, so, you know, I think that's something that really needs to take into consideration when you're talking about indie films, most impactful, um, and this is definitely one of them. Yes, there are harmful stereotypes um, in it, but, you know, especially when you're taking it into context, the climate at the time, um, it was probably the most... Uh, view into Chinese Americans and Chinese that the most of the general public in the U.S. had ever seen. Uh, So for those who don't know, uh, Flower Drum Song is set in San Francisco's Chinatown, even though very few scenes were actually filmed in San Francisco Chinatown. Um, But it's a romantic comedy that follows a Chinese woman who immigrates to the U.S. for an arranged marriage. Uh, But Mm -hmm. the man she's supposed to marry, a nightclub owner, is already in a relationship with a showgirl. So Mm -hmm. clashes with parents, love triangles, and the misunderstanding plays out through musical numbers. So yes, it is Mm -hmm. a musical, but ends happily. So um, so while critics do can kind of consider it like the best work of Rodgers and Hammerstein, it is still, as it is still like unbelievably popular and powerful, um, you know, I, I definitely think that, you know, it was a pop culture phenomenon and many... Men, it, it did make way for more Asians uh, to be in Hollywood film and also just like everything that kind of sprung forth from it. Um, I, I would definitely say that 
for me personally, that's kind of the reason why it is considered influential as far as the top indie film to be considered um, in our list. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it. It's quite interesting. I think for me, reading up about this, like even though the film was predominantly had uh, all Asian American actors and cast on it, critics and and and, al- and analysts now to say uh, today look back and say, oh, it was very problematic because it it perpetuated and it kind of showed all these harmful stereotypes but back then right to see there was no representation so there was no representation ever exactly and so just the mere fact of them having on screen and just the actors being on there was good enough for or it was like a huge step for the asian Mm -hmm. american community back then. exactly right because put it next put it up against any other you know asian film you're what you're looking at during that time in hollywood is yellow face actually mm-hmm. you're getting yeah. these white actors who are taping their eyes back you know fox eyes and and sometimes even painting their skin a different color so that they can be seen as asian and so it's like the this was this was progressive during that time yeah. um and and while it you know um <laughs> so and while like Hammerstein um, and uh, they saw it as like a loss, they actually took a huge loss at, by producing this. It still is something that um, was, you know, another seminal piece in like Asian film um, in Hollywood. And so, mm-hmm. right. Do you, do you think it should be celebrated more then or no? Because of <laughs> I, because of how it's portrayed now. Well, I mean, they did do a uh, they did do a revival of the musical itself. I, you know, like I mean, it is. I don't necessarily think it's something that we should erase either, though. Right. You know, yeah. Like, I was know? just about to say something like that. I think we need to be aware of not only the history of like Asian Americans, right, but the history of the waves that they were perceived. Like, we can't just forget that you know, in 1961, this would have been something that is like a progressive or like um, right. a groundbreaking representation. Because then, then you forget the extent to which, like, the racism existed or the extent exactly. to which people were pigeonholed and stuff like yeah. that. So now we're going straight into your number one. <laughs> yeah. I kind of, okay, I wish Alan was here, but maybe you can play, like, a, like a, you have, like, a soundboard. Just go ahead and play uh, <laughs> Alan's. I'll play a drum roll. <laughs> oh. I'll, play, I'll play a drum roll. Um, <laughs> at number one. Enter the Dragon. So this is actually released back in 1973. It is um, uh, Bruce Lee's presumptuously posthumous film um, released uh, after his death. Uh, It had a budget of $850,000. So while Bruce Lee had done earlier films at a much tighter budget, this one did have a little bit more, um, and it grossed. Um, 350 million, which translated into 2022, is over a billion dollars. So it made, you know, 300, you know, 500 percent more over than what his budget was. And um, you know, I I absolutely think that Enter the Dragon then because of what it was, what it was for. You know, not only did it showcase Bruce Lee, it showcased Juke uh, Kondo. It showed, and then from there, it, there were many, many clones that came out after it, and really set the bar for Asian um, uh, martial arts films and uh, and what it did for us. So, you know, uh, rest in peace, Bruce Lee and Brandon mm-hmm. Lee. We, you know, like, uh, but you absolutely uh, deserve 
in the upper echelons, number one spot for me. Interesting that you call this as an independent film, but I guess, yeah, by your standards, it is. I, I thought it was, for me, I view it as like a huge film, so I just didn't I think... know, but you also said that about Minari. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It's like, if you're, if you're, I was like, I had to stop and think about it. I'm like, okay, yeah, I guess during that time, yes, it could be considered an independent film, but as, mm-hmm. because in today's standard, because of the cultural impact that it had. Exactly. It became, yeah, it no longer shed, it shed the, the whole connotation of independent and, mm-hmm. and it became a huge worldwide phenomenon. Yeah. Okay, Prague, yeah. Okay, so I just I just became like more and more esoteric as I went, I guess. So my <laughs> my number one. At least one you're film, consistent with your theme. <laughs> yeah. Is Pale Cocoon by Yasuhiro Yoshira. Um and the film it won Best Screenplay at um the Sapporo International Short Film Festival um in two thousand six. But it's uh this guy he just kind of does independent films. Um He's a strange one. Not going to talk too much about him. But the film is worth a watch. It's only 23 minutes and like everyone should see it. Um, I'm not going to spoil it too much, but basically it starts with um, a character who is sitting in like a blocked out kind of space looking at a bunch of screens and uh, he's seeing pictures of earth like they're just like photographs but at this point um, civilization has uh, sort of like gone so far that they don't know what these things are so they're looking at just like photos of landscape and trying to figure out like what happened and like what these pictures are and where they come from and where in time they are and so in within the 23 minutes like he is like obsessed with these archives and like he just wants to know what happened in the past and um yeah there's a pretty big reveal at the end about why they don't know what these things are so you guys everyone should watch it it's a good one also to think how about how relatable um, to today yes exactly like to think about like the earth the environment like technology yeah. all of these things yeah mm. it came out 2006 right mm-hmm. came out in 2006 but it's a, it's a very good like thought piece i love it something about these japanese short stories that have scary foretelling of the future of our worlds like right or like they're, they're just like yeah <laughs> they're they're deeply introspective i think when they go to like make a film about something and like it's always um because they're short films because they're indie films they're able to like take perspectives on things that are not as prominent within like like both like you know live action film and like mm. mainstream film so like you get these stories that are almost like outside the over oove i don't know how to pronounce that word but like the egg of what you're normally exposed to mm. you only when you when you do get something that's as thoughtful stateside it'll be something like the matrix and then like everyone is just like oh shit like that was so that was so deep and thought out but like there's like this whole tradition of like short films and films like you were saying that like you know sort of like work through these topics so did you just say over oh my no, god i said over, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's O-U-V-R-E. O- oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I was, wait, yeah, but I'm we sorry. were talking about eggs. 
Yeah. Oh. Well, that. Oh, oh, it also means egg. It means like it, it's it's a similar concept. But okay. Like the yeah, the con. Basically, we're talking about like the enclosed space of what you are exposed to. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. Mm. Okay. I just wanted to be sure. I was like, oh, my back in seventh grade biology class. What's going <laughs> no. <on here?" laughs> it's, it's a film term for sure. I just no, don't no. know how to pronounce it. <laughs> no, no, for sure, for sure. I just like I, yeah. I haven't heard that word Oeuvre. in such a long time, but that's cool. Yeah. Is that how it's pronounced? <laughs> I don't know. I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. My number one is going to be Saving Face by Alice Wu. Woo! I I feel like I'm on this uh, campaign that is just continually reminding people of Saving Face and why it's one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, Renee, you know this, but I have a personal resonance with this film and its story. It perfectly captures the tone and mood of early 2000s for a lot of Asian Americans, especially growing up in big metropolitan areas, but also... It just kind of has this sense of trying to figure ourselves out, trying to f- solidify our identity, how we are, how we connect with our Asian, quote unquote, Asian culture, Asianness and Americanness and all that good stuff in between. Having watched it recently, again, you know, much of the writing has truly stood the test of time. It's been able to keep a lot of the wittiness and, and charm and heart to this day. And the fact that many of the actors still love to talk about this film and they gather and they always have reunions and this film always seems to come up uh, in many film clubs, seems to be featured in many film clubs and festivals, just kind of proves how significant this film was or still is and how it basically just reached like instant classic status. So it's like in that rare stratosphere where films are able this film is able to continue on and be talked about and celebrated in one of the i guess ogs of what we tend to think about of uh, asian american cinema in modern terms i haven't seen it so i guess i'll i'll have to take after amazon prime like, yep <laughs> you can head on Check over there out. to watch the origin story and then saving face yeah yes. well Pragya, Renee, thank you so much. It's been a very lively and, of course, very engaging conversation, very thought-provoking. I expect nothing Mm -hmm. less from you, too. It's been a fun conversation. For all of you listening, feel free to chime in with whether you agree or disagree with our listing in our films, if you want to add on to it, and also suggest if there's any films that should be included on this top five significant independent films. Tune in next time for another episode of Real Asian Podcast. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye.